All right, we're in the last chapter tonight, and I thought I'd wait uh, until we get there to read, uh, and we'll see. But I, I want to, I'm focused on verse 16, which I'll explain here in a minute. Uh, I'm reading a guy named David De Silva, and he, among other people, have noted that if you're going to understand the book of Hebrews, you probably need to understand the role of shame and honor both in the New Testament and especially in, the, in Hebrews. Now, I, I think that we might read this or realize this as a kind of historical discovery about the way ancient people did identity and in that way relate it to ourselves in a secondary way. But what I'm saying is let's not do that. I would claim that shame, honor hits upon a truth about the way all people do identity. And of course, this comes in part from my experience in Japan. It's probably true in Thailand. And, but I just think it's true everywhere that the idea of guilt as the basis of understanding the economy of salvation is inadequate. And so we built our atonement. We read the New Testament in a way that I think misconstrues it because we have this focus away from shame honor that I think is key to apprehending just the atmosphere of what's written. And so uh, if we talk about guilt, well, guilt's something you can take care of privately. You know, you resolve the problem interiorly or in, in your inside yourself. But shame and honor speak of a corporate experience, a city, a country, a family, a new kind of people are going to be involved in the resolution. And this is going to change up our focus in several ways. And I've, the way we've been reading Hebrews is already part of this changed up focus, and that is that the focus on the resurrection and ascension uh, is the accomplishment of the defeat of sin and death, and this then establishes a new economy that we institute among this new people. And so in the old economy, slavery to fear of death is the basis of you know a, a kind of slavery that Christ undoes. And we're going to experience these two things as we transition from one economy to the other. Maybe we could talk about power uh, and uh, in both instances there is a focus on power but the power of the human city is measured in terms of power against death. And this results in, a, in the oppressive notions of honor. And we can't, you know, honor is on the basis of the capacity to met out or control shame or, uh, or death. And so the worst that the city of man can do to you is what they did to Christ in his shame and death. So we might say that shame is, is the root negative emotion that is warded off or meted out uh, in the, the city of man. And what is happening in the city of God, in the kingdom of God, is an alternative to this that is being explained in the book of Hebrews that we'll come to. So the salvation in this understanding is... I don't mean to say that it's a deliverance from a root understanding of shame and honor, but what it does do is recognize we all depend upon other people. You know, in Japan, the group 
is focused on, and I think the city, the in scripture, the culture, all are part of our well-being and our identity. And scripture is not denying this in any way. What is happening in Hebrews and elsewhere is the call to a new city, a new family, a new country, a new group. As it describes this place in uh, chapter 13, this is an unshakable city and identity is no longer dependent upon the metting out of power against death. Rather, it is the resurrection, which, uh, you know, resurrection faith, which in fact does not factor in death. And, and death and shame then are undone in this economy. They're not a part of the medium of exchange. Another way of saying all this in a very simple way is to say that ecclesiology, our doctrine of, a ch- of church, is very much part of our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation. This means that what we do as the church, corporately, the body of Christ, is determinative of our present tense experience of salvation. That is, the quality of life that we have together is the, the nature of salvation as we have it. In this section, it talks about the call to bear reproach with Christ outside of the city. Uh, and of course, the idea here outside of the city structures. Uh, and I think the whole closing section is going to hold this together. The way in which one escapes the city and the way in which one meets Christ outside the gates has to do with the mode of life he's describing. He begins, you know, let us love, continue in love, and love characterizes this life. He immediately conjoins this with a different form of doing hospitality. Strangers are welcomed, which is a very dangerous thing to have strangers into your house. Prisoners are taken care of. That is, you're not to, you know, it's a a dangerous thing actually to go visit those who are in prison because uh, you're exposing yourself to the very authority that put them there. He p- touches upon marriage and human sexuality. Uh, I've, the, the contrast here would be Slavoj Zizek you know, and his descri- description of an apocalyptic kind of understanding is that the nor- normal bonds of marriage and sexuality are relinquished, just love the one you're with. But throughout Scripture is the idea that, no, our fidelity to uh, one another in marriage is one of the marks of these people who live outside the city. Love of money or earthly possessions is specifically named. It's to be replaced by a direct reliance on God. That changes up everything, doesn't it? Uh, A different form of sustenance, that is eating, is in some way we don't quite know what the problem was, whether it was the Jewish food laws uh, or even the way they were taking communion. We're not sure, but we're, the idea here is that we are in pursuit of a different way. And Jesus invited sinners to eat with him, a different sort of table. And so we're in pursuit of an alternative city which is a very practical thing in instituting these very different sorts of values. And the presumption is that we're enabled to participate in this alternative economy 
Because Christ is two things. He's priest and king. That is, he's mediating this to us, but he's also the ruler of this alternative kingdom. So this city of God is, he's already talked about, you know, he talks about Moses in, the, in uh, chapter 11, that he refused the privilege of being accounted, uh, accounted a son of Pharaoh. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. And now he's calling the readers, or us, to do what Moses did. There is, in a Nietzschean sort of understanding, a transvaluation here. He he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. And here's the honor-shame language that appears again and again throughout. Uh, That, you know, Christ despised the shame. And now... Uh, we see that Moses re- regarded disgrace for the, the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And so the, the city that we're describing is a kind of undoing of honor, shame, values. It's the reversal of the role of shame and death. Christ despised the shame, and the way in which he did that, and the way in which we're to do that, is through the reorientation of resurrection faith. And, you know, the other examples, you you go through all of them, but the the key example was Abraham, who endured the shame of childlessness and homelessness, looking for a better country, an alternative sort of city. Or Joseph, who foresaw an exodus, you know, or he foresaw the exodus even before, you know, they were enslaved in Egypt. The way that he describes this in chapters uh, 13, or 13, is we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This kingdom is not subject to decay, to change, to death, to removal. It is not subject to religious change. It's not subject to political change, you know, the change of priest or king. Uh, And he says that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the stability of this kingdom is what characterizes it. If we consider that what value is being exchanged in the world, it's a value that is always over and against security, warding off shame and death. Power itself is rendered, you know, it's made powerful in that it enables one to secure themselves against danger, against disease, against poverty, against all the things that, you know, we might characterize as shame and death. So wealth and power would be equated, and the, the specific language that De Silva and others have used is that of a patron client. That is, the patron is the wealthy, uh, you know, uh, one who cares for uh, his clients. And the patron would render assistance in times of need. He would invite his clients, and the more clients you had, the, the more prestigious it was, and he would offer them legal protection. Uh, and so this societal relationship extended to all peoples, you know, masters, freedmen, rich, poor, generals, conquered peoples, aristocrats. Every person felt bound to display some respect, honor, to those who were more powerful, up to the emperor. So it was very much a hierarchy, uh, a hierarchical system based on shame and honor, which was then understood on the basis of power. 
And so the concepts we've encountered and we're about to encounter as we close our study of Hebrews is that, you know, the, the problem is how are these people going to be faithful in the midst of a shameful, what would normally be a shameful condition? They're in the midst of hostility. Uh, and they need to live so that they do not, you know, he's used the language that you not put Christ to shame, that you bear reproach with him, that you go with him outside the city. All of this speaks of checking out of one economy, honor, shame, and entering into another. And so Christ is the one who has endured the shame, the suffering, the mistreatment. And they apparently are going through this, but he's describing this as a discipline and even as a cleansing from sin. And so they may experience physical beatings, verbal abuse, imprisonment. They've already experienced confiscation of their property. But the point is they must be willing to give up everything since the Son gave up all for them. And he is our model, and we follow him then uh, in, in the very mode of being saved. So what does Silva does? He goes through, he, he points out all the uses of, of shame, honor, shame language in Hebrews. Uh, you know, there's doxa at the beginning, which is glory. Uh, the, the way of, you know, Christ seated at the right hand, he's entered into the, the glory, and we've given access to that glory. Uh, there is the tima or atima, which means price or honor, reverence. Uh, there's uh, the idea of aiskunas, uh, or uh, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but the idea is modesty uh, or even even a kind of shame that's uh, in Hebrews 12 too. Uh, so there's about, there's about seven different terms that he goes through. And as Christians, the idea is that these things, that there is a reversal in all of this language that what would normally be bringing shame upon ourselves is now, in fact, to bring honor. On the other hand, to trample on the cross of Christ, the cross being the most shameful, there was nothing more shameful than a crucifixion. You know, death by crucifixion, who died? Well, this was slaves, criminals, uh, Cicero said, let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. Saying cross was truly a four-letter word in polite society in Rome. Even though it was continually happening outside of the major cities, it was the ultimate shame that a good Roman citizen need not fear. And yet, those who would forsake taking up the cross are trampling upon the cross. There's a complete reversal uh, regarding, you know, surrounding the death of Christ. And he, you know, the picture is the warning that comes with this is we bring the wrath of God upon ourselves. We cause shame to be brought upon the Son's name. And Maybe the, the temptation is here in, in going back to the old religion. Maybe it's in this final chapter. There's apparently heretical teaching. Um, but Christians are to be faithful in their suffering as Christ was faithful. They're to endure the shame. And so maybe two key passages, Hebrews 6.6, 6, 
Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. 1 to 2 is, uh, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. I guess that's to be our attitude. We're to despise the shame or the shame or the hierarchies or the valuation of things as this world would put it upon us. Jesus is our example. He, you know, he remains faithful, enduring, uh, being re- reviled, uh, and yet he's exalted. So again, the language is all honor, shame. He's exalted, he's at the right hand of the Father, and shame is of no effect. So in some way, we keep our eyes we, on, on Christ and the glory, the honor that we receive through Christ, and that then is the cure to the shame-honor system that this world would put upon us. The silver raises the question, how does, you know, how does the writer solve the problem of the dishonor of Christ and maybe the dishonor of these Christians they're, you know, that they're experiencing? Because these are people who are highly sensitive to shame and honor. What I was thinking as I was reading De Silva and others on this, I thought, yeah, but aren't we all highly sensitive to shame and honor? Or do you know anybody who's impervious to being shamed, who can endure shame? I, I think that shame is the strongest human emotion that there is. We literally cannot endure prolonged shame. He postulates that these people are longing for honor and place you know, in a kind of society of status. While at, uh, at one time the Christians, you know, they were willing to give up their status. They're looking back. They've, they've themselves have had their property confiscated. They've been subject to disgrace. Yet maybe over time they're longing for recognition. They're falling back into the pressures of, you know, feeling marginalized by the society, and their effort then is to regain honor in society's eyes. I mean, as I'm saying all this, I hope that we begin to feel that this is probably the place that we should all be. That if we imagine that our success is going to be handed out or meted out to us on the valuation of this world system, I'm afraid that we're missing the values that we're, we're encountering in the New Testament. And so this idea of associating, you know, the, the danger with them is to associate with slaves, to associate with a low-status group, would be undermining their attempt to move up, you know, to gain status. Uh, he says that they valued honor above all else, and the, the readers have experienced shame of losing their place in the world. Thus, we get the picture in 1025 that they're in the, some are abandoning the habit of meeting together. And those who have left, they need the solidarity with the brethren. They need to identify with those who are actually spending time in jail because of their faith. And, I, and we all, I think, understand the temptation is, uh, let's not go there. Let's not, you know, these people are shameful and to ignore them and to live by society's standards of honor and shame. Um, 
I think this is what undermines, you know, as the church in some way succumbs to the pressures of the society that the whole ethos of Christianity or the Christian life is going to be undone. And what the writer of Hebrews is calling us back to, what the Gospels are calling us back to, is, you know, think of Jesus associating with tax collectors, with sinners, with the low lives. And the expectation, you know, when we eat together, that we're to eat with anybody, we're to eat with everybody, we're to eat with people we wouldn't normally eat with. And so death and shame are the orienting factors in the life of the city, and we want nothing to do with that. You know, the shame occurs outside the gates. Well, that's precisely where we're to go. Security, permanence, wealth, sexual prowess, they're all markers of status. Those that have these things are valued as great and powerful in the city. I was trying to think of the movie, and I couldn't remember the movie, but you guys probably remember it, you know, where they're selling time, and the wealthy have all sorts of time, and the, the, the poverty-stricken are just living a day at a time. In a sense, that hits upon it, that the wealthy then are empowered with a freedom from shame and death, and the poverty-stricken are always facing that reality. And I think going outside the city means to reject this valuation, to no longer be you know, subject to these markers. Uh, I was, the one writer describes Homeric culture. He says that the chief good is to be well spoken of by the, by the chief. Ill, uh, the, the, rather, the chief ill is to be spoken badly of by one society and uh, is no less true in Demonicus he says guard more carefully against the censure than danger that is to be criticized or ridiculed good men should dread ignominy during life and even Josephus in the first century says that uh, to live nobly or die are the only options to suffer shame is a, is a worse than death. And so there was a strong tradition of despising death as a mark of courage, but not a shameful death, which was the most feared disgrace. In a sense, to die you know, was one thing, but to die nobly is better than to experience shame. And so the readers are to consider any loss of status or social reputation they've experienced as a badge of honor. He reverses this. We've already done this in chapter 12. Count this suffering, this hostility, as a kind of discipline from God. And then, you know, in chapter 11, he goes through the heroes of the faith whose loss of wealth, of prestige, of, you know, honor uh, is made up for in uh, the world to come. And so the lowest of the low, people who were imprisoned, chained, suffered horrible torments, disgraceful deaths, who were homeless, who lived in caves, who wrapped their bodies in, I'm just going through chapter 11, all of these things would have been shameful in a shame-honor society. But these are precisely the ones that are to be emulated ultimately with the emulation of Christ himself, who died outside the city. So in short, those whom the world despised turned out to be the ones who were ultimately accorded uh, the greatest honor. And so the task of Hebrews is to show these people 
who have committed themselves to a, a way of life that, in fact, is not socially approved. How are they to endure this? You know, he keeps talking about patiently endure the suffering, especially in this culture that puts a, the highest premium on public honor and the, and the avoidance of, of disgrace or shame. He doesn't challenge the importance of honor and shame as much as he suggests a reappraisal of what will ultimately count as honorable and shameful. Conventional wisdom, he's saying, you know, has gotten this wrong. He defines the values in a way that the judgment of God, who has the ultimate power, the ultimate honor, is the the means by which we judge all things. Let me conclude with a couple of quotes. These are from De Silva. You can find this. It's a wonderful article. He's doing the whole approach to Hebrews on a kind of sociological, anthropological approach. As I said at the beginning, the problem I find is just to imagine that we're going back and discovering some archaic way of doing identity. I think that what this, what Scripture is actually hitting upon and what psycho- psychology has returned us to is the recognition that shame is the root negative emotion. If you're a neurotic, if you've got mental problems, uh, that very likely, and this is you know in, in a modern psychoanalytic setting, they, they will describe the, the problem is often connected with shame. This is De Silva. How does the author of Hebrews solve the problem of the dishonor of Christ and the dishonor of Christians, permitting honor-sensitive people to continue in Christian activity? And he solves the problem, he says, by holding up an alternative system of honor uh, that is familiar to them, but with regard to which they require encouragement, reinforcement. The author seeks to persuade them to disregard the society's evaluation of honor and dishonor and to continue confidently in Christian identity uh, and, uh, and in Christian associations as a satisfying, in other words, he's not doing away with the need for honor, It's just that he's satisfying this honor in a different way. One more quote. Shame in its more positive sense, as that which makes one sensitive to the honor rating and respectful of social boundaries, and in the particular female sense of preserving chastity, the means by which women in the culture retain their own and their male kindred's honor, is at the heart of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So he's recommending them. Is it Travis and Becky? Welcome. Thank you. Um, Let me conclude it. He's giving us a different system of rating things. He's giving us a different way of uh, doing opinion. Uh, The... He's used Melchizedek, he's used uh, the figure of Abraham, he's used Moses. Uh, but ultimately, Jesus, he says that Jesus enjoys the highest honor of all beings under God. The author emphasizes Jesus' present, I'm reading to Silva, exalted status in order to gain credibility for the claim that despising reputation in the eyes of human society can lead to honor, high repute before God. 
So the author presents the Son, who is the heir of all things. Given that wealth is a component of honor and that the Son enjoys the honor that is due his Father, Jesus is presented as presenting uh, as enjoying the highest possible honor already. And so the repetition of the fact that he is at the right hand of God, that he's exalted to the highest status, uh, that he's been anointed, that he's been crowned, uh, all then are a part of this economy of, of honor and shame. As we read chapter 13, then that's the economy I think we're dealing with. Good to see you guys. Thank you. Any comment, question before we read? 13. Question, yes. But it could have been what you were just saying. But when you talk about going outside the city, I always, I don't quite get it. But I think I'm starting to. Do you just mean that when you leave the city, you're no longer adhering to those codes of honor and that's what you mean so then you exit the city and you have this new way of doing identity and all that I think so that in some way I mean the reality is we, we have to you know we're, we're the kingdom of God is now and not yet so we're, we're negotiating the now and the you know living in a world in which we're attempting to live according to the values of the kingdom of God. So how we negotiate this may be another question, but the fact that we should, I think is obvious, and I'm afraid that as Christians we've often missed the fact that shame, honor, or the valuation system of the world that we, our culture and surroundings give us is precisely not the way that we are to do honor and shame. So sometimes we choose to leave the city, but sometimes we get kicked out. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Because that's that's just trying to connect with, they took Jesus outside the city, right? Yeah. And and our temptation will to, to be to let, I mean, shame is an overwhelming force. I think that's what's, you know, we all know this, that we would do anything, I think. You know, we would just die. We could die of shame. But I think that we are given a means of enduring the shame, like the first martyrs, like the first witnesses, that enables us to do what I presume is nearly humanly impossible otherwise. Yeah. Maybe sometime we'll have to talk about how you um, still sometimes have to function in the city or in the society, but not be of it. Yeah, I was just about to say because that. Because the other extreme is like... Like, why aren't we all honest? Right? Like, that's the whole... That's, like, completely not a part of it. So I don't know how you balance or do both. Well, I think that's what you're talking about, that it doesn't define us. And so... That's how it's done. So we need the same, but not really... 
Yeah, I don't think he means that we physically go camp outside the city gates. I think that he's speaking metaphorically that in some way we are to uh, extract ourselves. And, I, and it's a difficult thing that he's calling them to do, and it's a difficult... If we don't recognize that Christianity is revolutionary and difficult, we're probably not doing Christianity. And so, you know, I uh, how we do it, I think, yeah, that's a huge question. But should we do it? Yeah, we better, we, we should. We, can, we can't let this mode of doing identity control our lives. Seems like. Go ahead. I already cut you off. <laughs> you said something earlier about dealing with shame privately, guilt. Yeah, what I what I was saying there is that guilt is something that we can deal with individually and privately. This is what you get in Japan. There really is not a huge notion of guilt, but to experience shame is to. You know, in front of other people's eyes, there is that sensibility. And so to cure shame, it calls for a corporate cure. We have to enter into a different group of people. I think we often picture Christianity as this kind of individualistic thing that, you know, me and Jesus and my dog and my horse and brother, son, and sister moon. I'm describing myself more than anybody. But uh, but that's not... that's transcendentalism that's not Christianity and so Christianity is this alternative group of people that and I think it's just that humanly the case that we define ourselves in and through the groups that we're associated with we are people who are living in cultures and we can't extract ourselves from culture but what we're called to in Christ is not an extraction from culture, but to a different culture, to a different people. But David had a comment. Well, I was just, I mean, it's the same thing that you just said. That in addition to it being difficult to know when and how, uh, as Christians, we need to step outside the city in our mindset or behavior or actions. Um, in the proper way of, of addressing shame, it's also become more difficult to understand how the culture does look at shame when we have presidents who say and do and get away with whatever they want or politicians who admit to horrible things and and then just say but I'm not going to quit or you know there's some some level of justification or uh, acceptance toleration or shame that the culture continues to grow and that's additionally confusing I think that's shamelessness going beyond shame and that's when Babel was destroyed yeah, that that uh, that if we do valuation according to honor shame, ultimately honor shame depends on power and wealth. But look who have the power. Look who have had the power and wealth in this culture. 
uh, if that's the way we're going to, you know, just think of how you can be an important person. It can be a pretty despicable <laughs> condition, one would think. And so there is the danger of shamelessness, which uh, I, I assume is actually the situation of the pre-Babylites, that they were psychopathic killers. They had no shame. Shame, shame has a positive element in that as long as we are still sub subject to shame, we also have the possibility of repentance. But apparently there is a condition in which one becomes completely shameless, in which I guess that redemption is not possible. And well, I'm not saying we call that, but God apparently does. And so shame is still as painful and terrible as it is it is a pointer to the need for an alternative valuation. This touches on everything, by the way. That, having Travis and Becky here from Japan, I mean, this is this is a an understanding of redemption that just fits in that culture uh, that you really don't need to explain it. But what you do need to do is is get back to a biblical understanding. Oh, honor, shame, or front and center in the New Testament. I assume Thailand would be the same thing. That you know that that East Asian cultures are more are, are more similar to first century culture than uh, you know Western culture at this point in time. And, and which is the truer? And I think we can use that language, you know, because I think what people are saying is, oh, well, they're just different ways of doing identity. What I'm saying is, well, no, actually, that this honor-shame system is a, a reflection of the reality of the way that we all do value. It's just that in this culture, we don't put shame, you know, we don't use shame as a kind of mode of manipulation. But you still have to be able to acknowledge or, I don't know, it, acknowledge, I guess, is shame before you can repent, right? I think so. That, um, I think, I think that in, in a sense, this conversation is descriptive of salvation. In other words, if you miss this, I'm not sure you understand what you're saved from. What you're saved from is a terrible thing. It is a thing that'll eat you up and that'll kill you. Because everybody is going to sh be shamed. Everybody, you know, pride comes before shame. So we may have our systems in which we do identity and we have our security. But that's all going to come undone. And so everybody's going to face the reality of shame and death at some point. And usually, I, I'm not talking about judgment simply. I'm talking about, oh no, just the reality of living is going to confront us with this. We're all going to be undone in some way if we imagine that the systems of this world are adequate to hold us together. Which is a, a, a vulnerable thing to say. 
you know, to, to say, you know, I'm not holding together very good uh, is, is not a, you know, we, we would rather not confront shame. And so this is the studies of Stephen Pattison and others. Pattison has done a whole book on how Christianity in, or the church or the life of the church is built upon avoidance of shame, avoidance of the entire topic, because it's too painful. Nobody wants to sit around and, you know, and, and con- the, the reality of this thing is unbearable. And, and so he describes, you know, that in, he goes through, he does a survey of all evangelical literature on shame, or all Christian literature. I think he's done an exhaustive survey. And in that he found two writers who acknowledge that they themselves are subject to shame. And he says, there's the problem. The, just the willingness to acknowledge this is the human condition. That's, your, that's a personal problem. You're hiding the fact that, no, this is a, something we're all subject to. We're all controlled by this thing. Uh, I think that's chapter 2 of Hebrews. The fear of death is, a, is ultimately living in shame. Shame is another word for fear. Uh, it's what it feels like to die. All right, let's try a few verses of chapter 13. Uh, Jake, you want to try? Uh, I don't know why I'm saying try. I'll do an attempt. Okay. <laughs> Uh, why don't you read verse 1 to 3 of chapter 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some is an age to entertain angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as so in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. So, uh, I, I think the agape love... Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. We're in the last chapter, we're on the home stretch. So, agape love, I think, is front and center, and it's under that heading that this entire chapter unfolds. Uh, He's talking probably, you know, who entertains strange uh, angels unaware. Well, he may be talking about Abraham when he entertained the three strangers, and one of them, some think, was the angel of the Lord, or Yahweh himself, or Christ. Uh, In some way, uh, there are not to be strangers. There are not to be the others, the outsiders. Uh, The worst thing that can happen to most of us is if we land in prison. I hope if I land in jail, you'll all come visit me. For whatever reason, I might end up in jail. That's the worst? That's not the worst. Uh, In fact, it may be a good thing. I can can think of a few more things that are worse. I can too. But for these people, if you go to prison, the the jail's not going to feed you and clothe you and give you a warm room. The family was, or the acquaintances, the community had to feed the... You'd starve to death if you had 
you know, they're not going to give you food. So they still depended on uh, their community to take care of them. All right, and uh, let's let's read verse four to six. Chris, you want to read four to six? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Uh, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I would not fear. What can men do to me? Uh, that uh, in some way, he's already described the fear of God as the controlling factor. Uh, you know, that the judgment of God, I think, stands behind all this. Of course, perfect love casts out all fear. Uh, but in some way, if we live our lives according to honor, shame, we're fearing the wrong thing. I just think it's interesting that in all of these lists, sexuality, marriage, fidelity, always comes up, and it comes up because this is such a strange thing. Who does this? Well, nobody in Rome in the first century. You know, that's not the way you live. Uh, we don't need to go into the details about how the patrician class lived, but it was not in this way. Uh, and then the love of money is key. Love of money is pictured by Paul as a form of idolatry. Uh, that it is an illicit desire. It is being given over to a wrong form of religion. And so if we depend upon God that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Alright, let's just do... I think we're out of time, aren't we? Let's do... To seven and eight. And Terry, you want to do seven and eight? You got. Uh, who has it? Uh, Alec? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is the stability. You know, we've already talked about the unchangeableness of God. This city that cannot be shaken, this city whose foundations are not made with human hands, this, this corporation, this kingdom, this identity is one that has a stability. And of course, in shame, honor, stability then speaks of the thing that wealth and honor would normally give you. But here, uh, the idea is that we receive this stability, this honor, uh, this access to the most powerful and honorable position through Christ. Jesus.